0: Hi, and welcome to a really good enough parent podcast. My name is Christine Altweis. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. And for 30 years, I worked in intercountry country and domestic adoption and family counseling. I'm the clinical director at Pona Roots Counseling Center, where our focus is on family systems. And I'm also a mother. I've created a really good enough parent podcast in response to what we see every day in our clinic. Childhood mental health issues are skyrocketing and it doesn't have to be this way. I know that really good enough parenting is a skill we all possess. As a parent myself, I also understand how easy it is to lose sight and to mistrust or panic in the face of a melting down child or an impudent teen. The good news is that you have what it takes to help your child. Take a breath. See your child's innocence. You can do this. This podcast will feature some of the incredible people I've been lucky enough to meet in my life. No two have raised their children the same and all have done a really good enough job. You'll hear new perspectives on how to handle tough situations. You'll be reminded of how your own parenting takes its cue from childhood. And hopefully you'll feel invigorated to go do a really good enough job at this most rewarding of all human endeavors. A Really Good Enough Parent podcast is designed to be story time for adults. So thanks for being here with me today. I do appreciate you. Enjoy the show. Coming up on A Really Good Enough Parent podcast... I'm happy to be sharing with you all my good friend and special guest, Dr. Ann Yabusaki. I met Dr. Yabusaki years ago through our work on fetal alcohol spectrum disorders at the Coalition for Drug-Free Hawaii, of which she was the clinical director at the time. She also is the founder of the Hawaii Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorders Action Group. She's the former president and dean of the Rosebridge Graduate School of Integrative Psychology We also share Kalamazoo College as our undergrad alma mater. Dr. Yabusaki has counseled many families and individuals using her unconditional love approach. In her work, she focuses on the importance of patience, deep listening, self-compassion, laughter, and letting go. Dr. Yabusaki is the author of Letters from a Tiger Mom, A Protective Mother's Reflections on Parenting Strong-Willed Children, Please enjoy this episode of a Really Good Enough Parent podcast with Dr. Ann Yabusaki. welcome to a really good enough parent podcast. I'm so excited to have Dr. Yabusaki with me today. It's wonderful to be able to spend some time chatting with you.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Christine. I appreciate your having me on your podcast. This is exciting.
0: Yeah, so I I would have had you on regardless just because of my uh, awareness of you and all the great work that you're doing with families and children. Um, But what sort of pushed this forward for me was reading your book, uh, which just came out. Um, The book is called Letters from a Tiger Mom, a Protective Mother's Reflections on Parenting Strong-Willed Children. So I uh, have very little time, but I somehow managed to find an hour and a half yesterday to sit down and read it cover to cover. And it was a delightful read, and I'm hoping we can talk about it a little bit. Um, But why don't we start off, Dr. Yabasaki, with... um, a little bit about your background.
1: Sure, sure. You know, um, I like to often introduce myself as the daughter of a mother who was born on the Big Island of Hawaii in the rural area. And it was a time when the schools only went up to the 10th grade. And she was um, the daughter of a immigrant from Okinawa who actually was, caretaker or janitor to a hospital so she grew up cleaning hospitals taking care of patients and actually riding horseback with the doctors to uh, the patients in the rural area so i'm kind of proud of that because it's um that's who i am that's part of who i am and then my father was born in the eva fields of pineapple fields of um actually sugarcane sorry sugarcane fields of eva on the island of oahu and his parents were also immigrants from Okinawa. So um, they, they had quite a life here. And, and really, their legacy is really who I am as well. And, um, you know, I had a grandmother, for example, I write in the book, my grandmother <laughs> was one of the first, um, you know, lunch wagon. She created a lunch wagon and sold her, her food in the fields of Eva. And um, for the life of me, I have no idea how she got her driver's license, much less a truck.
0: (laughs) She was entrepreneurial and she had chutzpah, it sounds like.
1: Yeah, yeah, lots of it. (laughs) And were you an only child? No, I have two brothers. I have a younger brother and an older brother. And um, we all graduated from Oahu, from a local school, Farrington High School. And my older brother uh, went to Georgetown University to get his um, degree there and became part of the Foreign Service Department at the State Department. And then my younger brother went into business and uh, graduated from UH and University of Hawaii and um, is very much involved with the business community here.
0: Yeah. And you graduated high school and... What happened next?
1: Well, I went, I decided <laughs> when I was in high school, I, I was always curious about well, what was happening in Hawaii why, why are there why is the politics the way it is that um, and the mindset the way it is? It was always as if um, there were uh, you know because it's so cultural, multi- multicultural, we think in my thinking was in terms of ethnic ethnicity and cultures and why were why were the um, cultures from the mainland, the white culture, so to speak, so dominant in our consciousness here and our laws and everything that we made? And why why, why were the Asians sort of um, good enough to support all that? And yeah, we fought among each other, but we had a different kind of lifestyle. So I wanted to go to the mainland to really understand what was it like to live in a white world? And so in doing so, I... Um, I told my dad, "I'm going to go to to this school um, in Michigan, and I I was going to study white culture." <laughs> and he thought I was nuts. He told me, "Why don't you stay home and become a teacher like everybody else?" And I um, decided, Wow! Not to. And you did. You went um, to the Midwest. You went to a small school yes. in the Midwest, which
0: was a pretty. I mean, it was a pretty isolated, pretty white place.
1: Right. I was one of two Asians on the campus too. So I learned a lot. I really had to learn fast.
0: Yeah, and reading that part of the book where you talk about being in college, it really kind of broke my heart as did many of the other sections in the book where you talk about what it was like to be the only Asian family wherever you moved around through the mainland. And um, having gone to that school and having a few years after you, um, at that point, it felt very multicultural. But in reflecting back on my own experience there, I realized I was viewing it through a white bubble, um, that as a white person there, I was, you know, part of the majority. And so the international students added color um, and sort of stood out, you know, but and and in my mind blended in also, or or were part of the general <clears throat> social group that I was in, um, often. But just sort of thinking about that again through your eyes really changed how I saw the school. So I'm I'm grateful you added that um, that section about being the only you we know, one of two Asian students. And then you you mentioned also befriending the janitor. Mm-hmm. I think.
1: Yeah, he he was from Latvia, and he understood what I was going through. I think because I had to learn how to set a table. I mean, we we ate with chopsticks here. <laughs> I said, "How the heck do you set a table?" And uh, he was—he was kind, very kind, and he taught me. And, and he says, "Yeah, I had the same problem too when I came." And um, but he was, was sort of like a father figure to me and helped me through this. So, yeah, it's good to um, find people not, where you can. Exactly, and there are good people wherever you go. So, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so after college. Mm-hmm.
0: What happened next?
1: Well, you know, it was such a challenging experience to being in an all-white community for four years, and and um, and I learned through my psychology professor that the cultures were so different that that's why I was seeing I was thinking differently about so many things. It wasn't them; it it was me. I had to learn to understand who I was instead of taking a reference point outside myself. And so what I did was I said, okay, I need to go to a place that has more Asians like me, but I couldn't go back to Hawaii because I knew I was part mainland already. I had inculcated a, a lifestyle uh, without knowing of being outspoken perhaps, more outspoken than some traditional Asians might be, um, maybe thinking in a different way about the world and so I decided to go to Seattle at the University of Washington to bring in, I, was, I went into the Department of Anthropology for graduate studies because I wanted to bring in culture into psychology to understand the cultural elements of who we are. And um, it opened up a whole new world for me about understanding how much we are um, a part of this a part of this environment in which we were raised. So yeah, and then that's where I met my husband who happened uh, to be in the Japanese American community. And he, his family was fascinating too, because I learned that they had gone into Idaho camp, um, Camp uh, Minidoka during World War II. So there again, the concept of uh, cultural concepts of when do you challenge the a wrong, a terrible wrong, and yet when do you keep silent for your own good? And that was a cultural perspective that I learned not to complain. This is a Japanese concept, you know, gamang, be quiet, you know. Yeah, kanai. it can't be helped. So come on, go with the flow. And so um, that's, that's what I saw happening a lot with the Japanese American community when they were incarcerated in the different camps during World War II. And then when his parents returned, nobody talked about it, no one. And, um, and I remember going on a date with my husband in a restaurant and I was born and raised in Hawaii, so I had a different experience, I was never incarcerated. But when we sat down for dinner, um, we were never greeted by a waitress it, and after, and or acknowledged, and so I said, um you know ken i don't i don't think um we're invisible here and he says no 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 the waitress is just busy come on wait a while and after 20 minutes i said you know this would never happen in hawaii never i don't know this kind of behavior and i think i'm leaving and so he looked at me and he said come on we're going and we left <laughs> and good for was, you it, but it was a total education for me to understand how we become a product so to speak how we adapt to our environment to make sense of injustice or whatever so and
0: that's what's so fascinating about your story uh is that your husband and you both japanese american although he's not okinawan is he Mm -hmm. also okinawan no okay so from my limited understanding okinawan and other japanese um, there's often some very big differences Um, Within the Japanese. Right. Um, So you're Okinawan born and raised in Hawaii, which even as you noted, was at the time when you were younger and probably still to to this day, white minority, but disproportionate amount of power in the hands of the local white families, um, considering the percentage um, that they occupy. So that was your sort of start in life. You had the comfort of being a, a majority. Yes. Right. Raised as an Asian majority in a dominantly Asian place, which was, I'm sure, a great comfort. And now, as you look back, you realize how much that gave you uh, in your start in life, the the comfort and the attachment and the lack of direct, you know, constant racial trauma. Um, And your husband was born and raised in Idaho?
1: In the camps. Yes. He was actually born in the camp. Yes. In the internment camp. In the internment camp.
0: Which I'm not sure if all of the listeners know um, much about the internment camps, because as I've been learning recently, it's shocking how few Americans seem to know about this part of our history. So I'll put something in the show notes for people to read and learn a little bit more about the Japanese internment camps, which were mostly in California. Yes. And... Okay, so he was it, born. Yeah, there were in, ten in camps. California
1: camp. Yeah, uh, well, I- Idaho, Minidoka, Idaho, and that's not too far from Boise, Idaho, in that area. But it's always in a rural, um, you know, hot desert type of un, you know, uh, land that uh, they had. They made uh, these camps for for hundred twenty thousand Japanese Americans that uh, were incarcerated. So um, and his parents were incarcerated for at least three years, and Ken was born um, about nine months before they were released. So it was And a baby, to be but clear, before.
0: for those who don't know, incarcerated simply because of their Japanese heritage. There was no illegal actions done by any of these interned no. people. Right.
1: Just to be Correct. clear, okay. Because there was um, a wartime effort to say that these, you know, they were a threat. Japan had attacked Pearl Harbor, and therefore all Japanese in the United States were questioned uh, in terms of their loyalty, and so um, they were just rounded up. Um, and in February nineteen, you know, nineteen forty-one, were put into camps.
0: Yeah. Right. Which I mean, this it's a whole other podcast for a whole other time. The yeah, yeah. The- insanity that we have, you know, perpetrated at times uh, in the name of whatever. And just what strikes me is I picture how many Japanese Americans were actually
1: fighting in the war um, yeah. on our side, right? Right. Um, yeah, actually, the the young men who fought in the war from Hawaii, the 442nd, were surprised at how they couldn't understand why they their counterparts, it, um, many of them couldn't understand why their Japanese American counterparts on the mainland were so quote docile and not you know not uh, aggressive in in the way that they were handling the situation, and some of the young men even visited their parents went back to visit their parents from their army in their army uniform at the camps.
0: Oh hey, boy, okay, yeah.
1: that, that's I'm so. It was a little disconnected at that bump. time. Yeah, but we'll talk about oh. that more later. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's a huge topic, but what what the context here is that if we're thinking about our role as parents, who we become as adults Mm -hmm. is so informed by how we start out in life, and your Mm -hmm. husband, who I've met many, many times, is one of the most generous, gentle, kind, you know, easily approached people I've ever met, and Mm -hmm. to think that he had this really difficult start in life, um, but something about him, either, you know, how his parents manage the situation or what he brought uh, in his own personality and his own constitution, or maybe things changed radically over the course of his life to make him this wonderful, gentle person in spite of this tough start. Mm-hmm. Um, so back to your life, you're in Seattle, you've <laughs> met Ken, you yeah. you finished your graduate degree
1: in anthropology? Nope. I decided, okay, I've had enough. I, I did my first year, time to get married. So we, I left. He was going into the military. So he went to um, North Carolina at, and there, and I went to Hawaii to earn money. And, and then uh, about a year later, uh, he was still in the military. He was there for two years. Um, we uh, got married in Hawaii and then went all the way back to North Carolina, where I, I was an army wife for a year. So, and then, yeah. Um, yeah. And then he got his, um, you know, he said, well, he was on duty. And at night, night duty, he would be applying for graduate school again because he was drafted out of graduate school for the Vietnam War. And then so he was applying for all kind of graduate. And then he got a scholarship and uh, aid at the University of Arizona. So as soon as we could, we left and we drove across country to the University of Arizona in Tucson. And that's, you know, I went to see my old alma mater, met some of my old professors and um, who helped me through those years. And then we came down and, um, you know, he got his doctorate in biochemistry and and I was pregnant at that time with the first kid. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So fast forward a little bit. You raised one child you gave birth to, (laughs) your son, and then you adopted a daughter. And remind me, Lee, your daughter, her, she's... Older or younger than your son?
1: She's uh, younger. She's three years younger. Yeah.
0: Okay. So you adopted her. And when
1: she came to you, she was less than a year old? No, she was two and a half years old.
0: Which is interesting. Yeah.
1: We found out uh, that the social worker said our son was about five and a half. Sean was about five and a half. And she said, you know, it would be good to have kids spaced closer together. They might be. um, And so we just went with her advice and said, okay, so why not go with an older kid? You'll have an easier adoption, a faster adoption. So we said, well, okay, let's do it. And um, and she came when she was almost three. And um, Sean was about five
0: and a half, six. Yeah. There's so much to talk about in that little detail, um, Mm -hmm. what you know now about child development and those crucial early years and attachment and trauma and so on. Um, So let's talk about whatever in the parenting realm is interesting to you. You've just written this book, so I know you've just spent quite a bit of time reviewing your life and reviewing your parenting and and your children. And I got to say for anyone um, who's got a little time to spare, I highly recommend the book. Um, And as I I said in my little Amazon review, it's great, I think, for anyone who works in mental health, anyone who is a parent, anyone who wants to be a parent, anyone who ever was a child, (laughs) anyone who wants to understand what it's like to be human, um, because this book is (laughs) really full of humanity. And I have so much respect for how vulnerable you are in the book, how much you share the details that people really are curious to know what's it like to be Japanese living in an all-white neighborhood, what is it like to raise one adopted and one birth child? What is it like to be working in mental health? We haven't gotten to that part yet. So maybe let's, before we move ahead, talk about what you did um, next in your academic career.
1: Oh, sure. What I, what I, you know, when I found out I was pregnant back at uh, Fort Bragg in North Carolina, I said, okay, you know, we got to be prepared for this. Let's do it. know because we didn't know what the hell we were doing we didn't know anything about parenting in fact you know we we weren't even trying to get pregnant just that i couldn't i couldn't take well to the birth control pill so i stopped it and um naively and not thinking about pregnancy so when i found out i was pregnant i took a total head spin about what this was about in my life and i had i said okay and In my book, I admit, and I do admit today to my kids, yeah, I'm a perfectionist. If I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it well. And I'm going to take this seriously. So I began to study everything I could get my hands on about parenting, about birthing, about infancy, about newborns, and um, trying to develop a a philosophy of some sort as to what I could do with this this thing that was coming. (laughs) So... um, so when I uh, I gave birth, actually, it was, it was such a wonderful experience. It was, it was mind-boggling. It was an awesome, it was truly spiritual. I have to admit, it was a truly spiritual experience. And uh, we fell in love with this little bundle of joy. And then he began to teach us about parenting. In retrospect, I realized I even, you know, I thought I knew it all. So I even taught a class on parenting in our student housing area. All these parents, you know, young parents, we all got together and I said, yeah, look, I read this book and I'm getting a master's degree in in parenting and counseling from the University of Arizona. And this is what it says. So I think we should do it. And so <laughs> I, I was so presumptuous. We don't know what we don't know. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, then, and then my son started to develop and I said, oh my goodness and then he started you know getting into all kinds of of who he was i saw him grow i saw him um i would say you know uh when he was first talking for example i write in my book i said okay we're going to learn english because i'm going to teach you english and and he look, look at me and he's about nine months old and i'd be reading book and reading a book to him and talking to him about pictures and the words that you know so on. But every parent most parents do and then I said, okay. Then he says, me. And I said, what? And then he pointed to some water and he said, me. And I said, you want water? So I gave him a glass of water and he drank it and he was happy. And I said, now wait a minute. Um, I never heard the word me. So I'm going to teach you water. So I held up a glass of water one time and to him and I said, and I pointed to it and I said, wa. And he said, wa. Ter. So I smiled at him. And I said, water. And he said, me. <laughs> Just, I said, Okay, this is, this is the beginning of parenthood. And I get it. Yeah. I get it. I've. And over the years, he has taught me to back off, mom. Back off. Your way is not my way necessarily. And then we had our daughter come off the plane from Korea. She was th- almost three, as I said, two and a half years old. And she was crying. She was the only kid that was crying, and we knew that was her because she didn't like to wake up. But, but it took me. Um, so as we tried to to integrate as a family, I learned from um, our son after two, you know, after two a month or so, he says, "Can't we return her? She's she's so much noise, and she would cry a lot." And I, you know, I said, "No, we can't. We can't return her. She's our kid." And so. You know, so over the years, we worked together, and what Ken and I was always saying is that, you know, if we can't get this right, at least we get the communication with these kids right. We've got to keep in communication. That's what will hold our family together, and I I firmly believe that. So when they were about, you know, when Ken, he couldn't get a job as a professor as he had hoped. He started his own company, a biotech company, in, in that area, in Berkeley. And what happened was, um, after about three years, he got fired um, because of of not being a real marketeer. He was a scientist, and um, and would fight with the um, organization. You know, although he was a co-founder, they fired him. So during that period of our family life, um, you know, our son might have been about I, I can't remember a little older, and um, our daughter was enough to understand language in English and she was really m- much more integrated into our family. Our son suggested, "Let's go to family therapy. This is not working. Our family is not working. We need family therapy." And, and he was how old at that point? only about 10, you know. 9 or 10. And and our daughter might have been about maybe yeah, maybe even less. She was about 6, so he might have been about 9. And I you know, and here I am. I now have my master's in family therapy from the local university. I am opening a private practice and my son says, we need to do family therapy. Okay. So it's like should, a gut punch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. A real wake up cause. Oh, Jesus. So we went and he did it. Our therapist did a sand tree. A sand tree is, you know, a, a small tree of sand and a lot of figures around the room toy figures, small miniature figures, and they started to pull off the figures. He says, okay, show me what your family looks like in the sand. And the kids jumped, and they they made a sand tray so filled with animals pointing their behinds to this prince and princess in the middle of the tray. And we looked at it, and <laughs> I said, I think they're mad at us. <laughs> And so, and they just howled. the kids just laughed and they had such a good time. I said, that's it. That's it. And so Ken decided he needed the therapy because it was his anger that was being, you know, projected onto the family or within the family and, and affecting all of us for the firing. And after that, you know, things started to open up. But um, this is the kind of family that uh, the kids grew up in. Um it was, and, and we learned as, and I, as a parent, had to set aside my books when they were in high school, and my daughter, Lee, our daughter, was in middle school, and and our son was in high school. I had to stop. I was almost ready to get my doctorate, mind you, in psychology and family therapy, and and I said, um, we had so many phone calls from the schools complaining about our kid. You know, our kids were. Violating laws, and they were on when Lee was then on probation for throwing letters out of somebody's out of all the neighborhood uh, mailboxes. And so I said, um, I think I, I, I think something is wrong here. I need to stop educating myself, and I need to listen to the kids more and listen to the family more. And so that's when I closed my private practice. I had I felt I had no credibility. I could not advertise myself as an expert on anything, and I said, "Okay, stop
0: it." So I stopped it. Let me take a moment here because this I found this to be one of the most profound moments in your book, and um, Mm -hmm. just you know, knowing you and Ken, uh, I you know a little bit, but knowing you as I have in the community, and you're you're such solid, lovely, considerate, conscientious, highly educated, intelligent people. Um, And what I'm what I'm getting at here is that, you know, parenting, (laughs) parenting is a really rough job and it doesn't really matter what your credentials are or how intentional you are or how sincerely you approach it. You are dealing with a human being who, to some extent, comes with their own ideas about who they are and where they're going. And I think a, a grave mistake many parents make is is not acknowledging that. And I talk about that a lot on the podcast is sort of, you know, are you curious about your child? Do you want to get to know your child? And if you do, then you're probably going to have an easier time um, because that's really where it needs to start is understanding who your child is, not superimposing your own mm-hmm. parenting paradigm or your own, you know your own needs, goals, et cetera. But the other thing that I'm so curious about, and I'm wondering if you would do it the same if you had it to do again, is the shutting down of the practice. Because I think that as therapists, we are under immense pressure, mostly self-imposed to be some model citizen, some highly evolved human, some perfect being that doesn't actually exist. Um, And I almost think that a therapist who is struggling might even do more good, might be better for people. I mean, it's so long as you're not distracted by what's going on at home, right? So long as you can separate and say, okay, now I'm here. But that imposter syndrome, I think, is so profoundly uh, toxic. (laughs) And that's what you were suffering from at that point, even though you might have been a really excellent practitioner at that point. So had you to do it again, would you if everything was
1: okay, shut down your practice and take I would. a break? I would. It, it was, uh, as, you, as you mentioned, Christine, I, was, I felt like I was an imposter. I was uh, playing a role that was uh, too high. Um, and the children were telling me that and my family. But more importantly, I think um, I was too distracted. I couldn't really focus on the people in front of me anymore. And then I would be agreeing with parents that would want to punish their kids. I said, "No, wait a minute. You know, wait. A minute. That's not my philosophy, because right. of my own personal struggle. So I had to go back into my own personal struggle and sort it all out with my. And it was going to be with my kids and my family. But I also learned that that was my priority in life. My family was my priority, not my work, not my identity, not you know. And that I and I needed to pull back. And how would I do that? That was my struggle. How do I allow my children to suffer, quote unquote, life, understand it's imperfect, imperfect, you know, imperfect, imperfections and protect them? That was the struggle. How do I protect my children from the racism that my son was undergoing in high school? And, and how do I, I, and his anger was all over the neighborhood. And and my daughter, who was going through her own identity crisis of trauma and who am I? Questions that I didn't realize until later, but I had to go in and understand um, what they might be doing and what might they be having, and and understand what is my relationship to that. And so, I write in my book when I was so upset with my daughter, she called me a B word, you know, and. I was ready to punch her out. <laughs> and, I, and then a voice stopped me and said, you, you, you know, I had her pinned to the bed and I was ready to slap her or something. But a voice popped into me and said, hey, this is child abuse, stop it. And I stopped it. And then Thank I realized, God for that. yeah, this must be unconditional love if I could stop myself from killing this kid, you know? And from then on, I began to be a better listener. I could, I could pull back. Let her learn from her mistakes and just support her. I I created stronger boundaries between us. I became who I was and I could allow her to become who she was. And, you know, all that was good stuff to learn, which I couldn't do if I had a private practice and was doing a dissertation for my doctorate. So, Yeah. Working. It's an
0: important thing is like the, the children definitely need to see parents striving and working and modeling, you know, the pursuit of whatever passion they have. But I think also at some point when the home life is rearing its head and <clears throat> sending very clear messages that it needs more attention, you made a heroic decision to do to focus on your family and to be with your kids who really needed you. It strikes me in thinking about, you know, the sort of the stereotypes of Asian families living in mm-hmm. communities where they're the minority that we often hear or we more often hear of the sort of quiet, um, subservient approach uh, or attitude or reputation and to think of your son you know, throwing bricks through windows and Mm -hmm. smoking pot and like, you know, rebelling in the loudest way, calling for attention in the loudest way. And you talk about your daughter, you know, dressing uh, in ways that you felt were inappropriate (laughs) and also, um, you know, doing other things that worried you, you know, classic call for attention, classic, you know, trying to figure out who she is in this context and screaming for help in a way. Um, that you don't often... I I realized I had some stereotypes in mind when I was reading that um, that that were thankfully, you know, broken down as I was reading your description of your life.
1: Yeah, you know, the stereotype of the Asian uh, family where children are well-behaved, they, they do well in school, they go on to college and make the parents, you know, shine, and, and they do it for the image of the parents. That That's the whole underlying, you know, you do it because my dad said or whatever. Well, our children refuse to do that. They absolutely refuse, you know. Um, our son dropped out of college. He said after two or three years, he says, mom and dad, I'm, I, I don't want to disappoint you. He said that. I don't want to disappoint you, but I've decided to drop out of college. And all I could say was, well, it's about time because it is getting to be too expensive for you to be going part time doing nothing. OK, so, <laughs> so so he felt, you know, I, that was all I could validate him. I said, I think that's a terrific idea. Do it, do it, do it. But I think because both parents have their PhDs, we've gone on to become these uh, people in the community and so on. It must have put a pressure on them, that you know, that we couldn't help. We couldn't avoid right. it. And they, um, and they rebelled in their own way and they became their own people. And, and, you know, we had to allow that and be embarrassed by that. And, you know, <laughs> even writing this book, I was saying, how much do I reveal about what happened to us? You know, what will my clients think about me? What would my professional colleagues think about me? I said, you know what? If this helps another parent to know how tough it is to parent, regardless, but with, intention of of um knowing that to have self-compassion for yourself that you can't be perfect and nobody wants to be perfect and um but teaching your children that uh it's okay to be
0: who they are Yeah, I love that. And thank you for tying it back into the really good enough parent idea that I'm Mm -hmm. using here with the podcast that our children learn the most when they see our humanness and when they don't feel like they have to be perfect and when they see that we're not perfect. Because really what matters most is what do you do with that? You know, when you realize there's some room to grow, do you go out and seek the growth and, and do you continue to, you know, work for that? Or do you give up or do you, you know, shrivel up and die? What do you do with that? So I I love that about the book specifically that you share a lot of unflattering details about yourself, about Mm -hmm. times when you made major, you know, choices that you then wanted to go back and correct, Mm -hmm. um, in your parenting, um, So if you could say a little bit more about that, because I found your then your eventual journey into Buddhism or into Mm -hmm. sort of a different mindset, very
1: interesting. Can you share a little bit about that? Sure. Um, You know, ever since the kids were little, I've been, uh, you know, particularly for my own practice, um, I was raised a Christian, but I was raised in a Buddhist society as well. So I was curious about how can i be a better person or how do i live in this world not necessarily a better person but just how do i live in this world and what is the meaning of all of this and that's why i wrote the book i i when i think back into my experiences i realized that the meaning of all of these situations was to teach me to become more compassionate more loving um, and and patient and um because I don't have the answer. We all have the answers within ourselves, and that's your answer. My answer can't be your answer. And so, um, and then, you know, reading philosophy, Buddhist philosophy, and meditating on, um, you know, uh, Lao Tzu, for example. Let me, let me read a, a quote from Lao Tzu. Oh, great. Yes, heard. thank you. Yeah. You know, he says, and I, I really have to take heart to this, it's about being loved by someone gives you the strength gives you strength. While loving someone gives you courage. So being loved by someone gives you strength, yes, support. But while loving someone gives you courage. And that courage was for me to be able to be imperfect, to love unconditionally and and let let my children fly with their own you know, with their own soul, so to speak. Um, And then Lao Tzu also wrote, those who flow as life flows, know they need no other force. So to go on and find that flow of life for yourself is just as important as for your children to find that. But you must allow your children to find that flow for them and support it. I think that, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, the final one. Yeah. Yeah. The final big lesson for me was, again, Lao Tzu. And this is from martial arts. To hold, you must first open your hand. Let go. You know so, yeah. and 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 you know, interestingly, this is what I find with families that I, I counsel. That teaching the parents to have the courage to kind of let their children go, um, but supporting them in the best way they can, without you know life-threatening situations or whatever. But to be able to let go and have them explore the world in their own way, making the mistakes that they do, is perhaps the best gift we can give as a parent.
0: And one of the most difficult, and one of the reasons why parents and children wrestle and tangle horns so often, is yes, that yes. that steadfast grip that parents often exert on their kids. And The second thing you read about the flow makes me think that particularly that, you know, we have to be curious about who our children are and we have to be brave enough to allow them to be who they are without trying to micromanage or form them into our own image, so to speak. Right. And Mm -hmm. I, and I think that's where a lot of children end up growing up feeling misunderstood or Mm -hmm. not seen, um, you know, somehow not validated, often have shame or guilt about who they are or about what their choices are. Um, and, and really, I think, you know, the parental instinct is always coming from a good place mm-hmm. or from a, from a place of love. But I think it's important for us to take a step back and look at what is really going on, because usually it's fear that something mm-hmm. is going to go wrong because mm-hmm. we we see the mistakes about to happen, which mm-hmm. we know we should let our children make, but it's terrifying mm-hmm. um, to do that. So I, I really appreciate all of that, and I love the thought of you with the incidents you share, which again are surprising, knowing you as I do, as such a calm and gentle person. Some of the, um, the sort of intense energy that you share <laughs> that nice and saying it nicely. Thank you, Christine. <laughs> Yeah. Um, (laughs) uh, Those were great details, though, because I think that's what people want. People want to be a fly on the wall and know how do other folks handle this? What does a trained therapist do? And then how does she recover? So, you know, in that idea, are there moments that you now look back on with the wisdom you've accumulated when your children were doing specific things that you reacted to in a specific way that you would now do differently?
1: Uh, you know, I, I can't say that I would do anything differently because I was, there. I I still am and I still feel that way, but you know, um, but now I can be more patient about the situations that they're in that I disagree with. And I can, I can, I remember my daughter bringing home a friend, um, to our, one of our dinner parties and, and this is the first time. And, um. You know, he was trying to make. I could tell he was trying to make an impression with us, and he kept talking and talking and talking. And then he got drunk, and then, and then, and then, okay, I said, give him a benefit of the doubt. We invited him to a second one, and after that, I said, you know what? I don't. His energy does not match with my energy. I'm gonna. So I had. We had our usual family council. I called the kids. Let's have a family council. I asked them. So our son was visiting from San Diego, so he, he was there, our daughter, and I said, you know what, um, I have to ask you not to bring him in my company in the future, because I, he riles my energy up, my energy. you know, I, I generally try to call, stay calm with, within a peaceful, loving energy within myself, but gosh, he's got strong, pulling energy that I can't manage yet. And my, my children were saying, mom, you've never said that. I said, well, it's just a boundary that I now create for myself. Good for you. Yeah. Good for you. Taking care of myself gives you more energy for you all. So no. And, um, and that's, that's what I do now. (laughs) Yeah. So going back to the, I wouldn't
0: do anything differently. Yeah. um, For example, I'm curious, like, some of the moments when you reacted to your children in ways that um, that were strong, mm-hmm. um, for example, your daughter dressing in a way which concerned you, yes, um, expressing herself in that way, yes. How would you handle that now?
1: I think or I you would handle it again. Yeah, I would. I would um, handle it um, more, maybe with you know asking her about this, n- noting it. But the point is that she wasn't talking to us at that point you know she was just so acting out there was just you know hi i would say and she would grunt and go into her bedroom that that was the level of communication then if i um what i did in that instance was to barge into her room i said you know you're creating too strong a boundary here this is not healthy and that's what i was thinking at that moment so i barged into her room and said This is what's happening. This is what, you know, I hear about your uh, clothes being too uh, revealing. And so I'm going to take all your clothes that's too short, uh, revealing a midriff, and I'm going to dump it into this garbage uh, bag. And um, the point is, she didn't object. And so I thought, wow, did she need a strong intervention like that? Um, And I didn't know about it. I might have... I might have done it sooner rather than later, or I might have sat her down and said, you know, you can't have this anymore, and even if she didn't want to talk about it, but this was beyond talking, so I just said, I got to act, so I acted, yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't think I would have, I would have done it differently, maybe done it sooner, and then I wouldn't be so angry, you know, do it before I was so angry, perhaps, yeah.
0: Yeah, I think it's, um, we often hear that parents are sort of offended that their children go through periods of not talking to them or not wanting to communicate a lot. Um, and then often the parents exert pressure, uh, Mm -hmm. which makes the kids shut down more. Mm -hmm. And I encourage parents to allow those phases to happen organically. There may be times when your kids don't need to or want to or know how to talk with their parents. And rather than making them feel bad about that, you can be a consistent, loving, patient, person in the background saying, I'm here when and if you're ready to talk. I love you. It's okay. (laughs) But I think we take it personally and then we react Yeah, and
1: then, you know, things don't always go so well after that. Um, But fortunately for her, you know, in that situation I think sometimes parents have to just use their gut feeling as to what the intuition, what might work with this child at this time in their lives for both of our lives. And It was like an intuition that just says, you know, stop it, stop it. Um, And so I, and through my action, I was communicating with her, and she never challenged me, and she went on to buy appropriate clothes for herself. So, you know, although we didn't talk about it, um, I, I felt maybe she was waiting for me to get in her face. I have no idea, you know. But in any event, yes, I think you can go either way, like you say, but for... Yeah. yeah,
0: And we know that children do like to have, even though they bristle against it, the sense of uh, the boundaries and the safe vessel that the parents create, right? And kids right. often bang up against the walls that we put in place for them. But if those walls aren't there, they feel unhinged, unmoored, they flap yeah. around out in you know in the world and they don't feel safe and secure. So until they're ready to do that individuation launching, going out on their own, we have that super unglamorous, unfun, tough job of creating that safe space for them <laughs> that they
1: often resent. Um, right. Now, and you like know what's, you what's interesting, too, Christine, is that at that time I was seeing a family that whose daughter, oh no, uh, several years later, I was seeing a family whose daughter had absolutely cut off all communication with her family. And this is what I refuse to have for our family. And I would communicate in any way I could to preserve that. So, yeah, yeah, and I see that particularly, I don't know about other families, but I had been seeing a lot of it in Asian families because Asian families avoid conflict. That's a cultural thing. We avoid conflict. And so when I see that and when I had several families who, who begged me to try to bring their children back to them, I realized that this this was a way of handling conflict and that is to just absolutely cut off the family and not see them. And, and some kids have not ever returned 30 years later. That's
0: heartbreaking. It yeah. yeah. it is. And you wonder, I mean, you want to sort of say that cultural mores and norms and traditions are somehow right. relevant. You know, you don't want to rewrite cultural practices, mm-hmm. but I do wonder if, If there is room for growth, um, because you'd like to think that if those parents had known earlier on how to create those lines of communication in a safe and inviting way, that things wouldn't have fallen apart. What do you think about that now, looking back through a cultural lens, cultural
1: perspective? From a cultural lens, yeah. I I think, um, you know, people live in a multicultural society. We can learn from each other. Different ways of handling issues and and one of the reasons why I as an Asian woman wanted to a mother wanted to write this book was for the Asian community hey guys you know we're in this together this is this is not something that we should be ashamed of but we should learn to talk about it more learn so that our children the next generation can benefit from this you know I always tell parents way you parented is is when you see your grandchildren because your parenting came through your children. So I say I always look at what happened to your grandchildren. I don't care about what happened to you. So when I see what happened to the grandchildren, I say, ah, you had good enough parenting. Good enough. Right. Be Thank kind you. to yourself. Good enough. Praise. Praise and celebrate what you did. You know? Yeah. Because it's in the grandchildren that I see the the, the parenting values coming through that you had tried to instill. Yeah. That's so important. We often tell
0: ourselves when our kids are rebelling and hating us openly, uh, that we have to sort of be patient and wait till they become parents, which is, yeah. I think, one of the reasons why we become so excited at the idea of grandparenting is because we know, OK, finally, our kids are going to understand what we were doing all those years. Now that they're going to be doing it themselves, they're going to finally have that aha moment and realize what brilliant geniuses we were as parents. <laughs> and they'll get it and they'll be like, oh, yeah, this isn't so easy. You did a really good job, mom, <laughs> or at least a really good enough job. <laughs> um Speaking of the racism, just, I'm, I'm, I'm still so curious about, um, with your children growing up Asian in a predominantly white area, I think we can never talk about this enough because, you know, even when people are being nice or even when um, you know, there is an overt hate coming at your child, the microaggressions and the covert racism and, and living in a place where um, the system is just rigged against you, you know, and there's a systemic racism all around you. Um, I think it's so important for those who've never experienced that to just, you know, sit with it for a minute and realize that, you know, in in your two children, and who knows what else was going on, right? One could point to a million potential triggers, but I'm guessing that knowing you and Ken as such loving, you know, intentional, kind, hardworking people, that the parenting you were providing from day one was certainly what I would consider, what I would imagine to be exceptional, um, and that you were a loving couple. Your marriage was and remains solid. Of course, marriages, you know, they're not always perfect. We struggle mm-hmm. sometimes. Uh, you moved around. But my guess is you created a very safe, loving home environment for your kids. Um, there weren't any of the sort of standard, egregious things happening that we know can cause kids to suffer or struggle, mm-hmm. right? There was none of that happening. Your home life was solid. And still, the mm-hmm. children manifested
1: struggle in a very big and public way. Mm-hmm. Very big and public way. I, I appreciate your mentioning that. Exactly, exactly. There was no way that we could hide, you know, what was happening because they, they, they acted out in public. And, and um, you know, we knew the cops in three countries around us. Uh, they're all New York kids. Um, and, and, you know, it. it um, maybe we, uh, the story that I bring is, is really about, you know, in a, the universe showing me or through our lives showing others, you know, there are big issues here. Okay? you got to knock yourself on the head and you've got to go through the dark night of the soul in order to come out to understand. What this was all about. What the what's the meaning of all this? And yeah, um, we may n- we're never going to conquer quote unquote conquer or, or reverse racism. I, I don't believe that. But what we can do is make our children sensitive to that, and that is not about them. It's about the society that they live in, and to protect them from being uh, not personalizing the attacks, and not taking that on. So as parents, I said we have to be examples for our kids, and that's why we took up the sword and we talk about it, we educate, we and and you know wherever I see injustice, for example, I'm, I'm with the fetal alcohol spectrum disorders group, action group. I did it because I do it because this is an underserved, invisible population, yes. much like the Japanese Americans were. This is a civil rights issue. And in fact, yes. when we do our, our next conference, I've always gone back to the Japanese American Citizens League, our chapter in Berkeley, to fund us. And they fund us because they see this as a civil rights issue as well. And that we want civil liberties. We want yeah. um, equity in everything, not not just um, culturally or ethnically. But we see it racially, LGBTQ situation, all of that. Um, and now in the developmentally disabled population, all of that is, yeah. is systemically biased against them. So that's what we do. There's so much
0: to be done, and I'm so glad you're here doing it. And I'm, I'm grateful for you for so many reasons. And I, I think, you know, just sort of wrapping up on the your perfect home life and yet your children still struggled idea is that there were forces happening outside of your home Yes, <clears throat> that you weren't maybe always aware of and you became more and more aware of. Um, that were directly impacting your children's mental health and sense of self and sense of the world. And so for parents to always be curious and questioning and thinking and aware of what is, what is in my child's realm of awareness? What is coming at my child that I might not be you know, directly seeing? What forces are working on my child? Um, and just as you were to be curious and not afraid to change things up, to look at your own stuff, you know, make dramatic changes that work in favor of your kid if you have to. So I've really enjoyed this time with you. And I'm so grateful that you were able to give me an hour of your time and that you um, notified us of this fabulous book, Letters from a Tiger Mom, which I will also have in the show notes for people to um, to get if they're interested. Oh, so thank you thank very thank you. much, Christine.
1: It, it, was, it was really a joy talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll talk
0: again. Aloha. Take again. Bye. Thanks. Bye. This has been another episode of A Really Good Enough Parent Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd leave me a rating or subscribe. Subscribing helps boost my ratings, and rating me obviously helps boost my ratings, but only if you liked what you heard. But apropos that, whether or not you do or don't like this, I really do like feedback. So please drop me a line if you'd like. Let me know if there's someone you want me to interview or a certain topic you'd like me to tackle. You can find out more about A Really Good Enough Parent podcast on the Pono Roots website at ponoroots.org. That's P-O-N-O-R-O-O-T-S sorg Pono Roots is a non-profit program, and if you wish to support our work, donations are always welcome. And with that, I'll leave you a quote from Carl Jung and something that my children remind me of every day. You are what you do, not what you say you'll do. Thank you. Take care. Aloha. loves Detroit.